I'm John Tarleton, a host of the, of the Independence Election Night Special here on WBAI 99.5 FM. In our final 15 minutes before we have to go, we're going to uh, continue to look at the bigger picture outside of New York uh, nationally. Uh, the biggest race of the day is in Virginia, where uh, Republican uh, Glenn Youngkin, former CEO of the Carlisle Group, uh, is leading uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, a longtime uh, uh figure in Clinton world is anyway, McAuliffe is down uh, 10 points, 54 or 55 to 45 with 61% of the vote counted. Uh, the race has not been called yet. Uh, we don't know exactly where the remaining uh, 40% or so of the vote uh, still needs to come from in Virginia. Yonkin uh, doing extremely well in rural areas and uh, so far has been making up ground in some of the suburbs of Virginia where uh, Joe Biden uh, did very well last year against Donald Trump. And uh, to talk about what's happening in Virginia and this uh, sort of the larger phenomena of the Republicans uh, really trying to mobilize around uh, white, basically white grievance to mobilize their way back into power. Uh, our next guest who's going to help us uh, dissect that is Linda Alcoff. Uh, and also we're going to be joined by Alex Hahn, uh, executive director of Organizing Upgrade, a uh, essentially a, a think tank for for left strategy and organizing here in the United States that does uh, really great work in, uh, in interpreting the, the moments we're in and how uh, the left can effectively organize. Uh, Linda and Alex, welcome to WBAI. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, great, to, great to be on. Great. Thanks to both of you for joining us. So, so Linda, the, um, we, we were, you know, we've seen this, uh, Tremendous uh, uh, appeal to um, uh, ra- racially anxious white voters in Virginia, uh, a number of whom voted for Joe Biden over uh, Donald Trump last year. And at least so far, uh, the Republican uh, gov- governor candidate, uh, Glenn Youngkin, is up by 10 points, roughly. Uh, I want to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, we have, a, I think, a couple of clips we can play. Uh, one is an ad that uh, the Republicans ran in the past month. Uh, uh, trying to play on fears of a uh, a famous novel by uh, Toni Morrison called Beloved, uh, which uh, draws on the experiences of slavery. A- a- and then also, w- I think we have another clip uh, of uh, a Virginia voter being interviewed about uh, their thoughts on critical race theory, which has sort of become this uh, catch-all for all sorts of uh, um, uh, boogeymen the Republicans have uh, tried to stir up this cycle. Uh, Let's see if we have these clips ready to go. I'm sorry, John. I do not have any clips. Okay. All right. Um, Well, we'll, we'll just uh, keep on moving along. So um, anyway, the Republicans have, uh, have really uh, tried to stoke fears of critical race theory and and then have gone on to try to stoke fears of a novel, uh, a, a, by a, a Nobel uh, Prize-winning uh, novelist, Toni Morrison. Uh, Linda, can you talk a little bit? I mean, y- you wrote a book called The Future of Whiteness. You're certainly familiar with cre- critical race theory uh, from your years in academia. You're a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. Uh, can you talk uh, briefly about what critical race theory really is and and, and how it's uh, sort of been uh, hijacked and, and, and turned into this uh, caricature? Yeah, John. Um 
I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you had me on because I was watching MSNBC earlier talk about critical race theory and it, I was about to tear all my hair out. I think I have a little. Oh, don't do left. that. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're, they, they said, this is what they said. They said critical race theory, theory is not being taught in Virginia schools. This is the liberals talking. Okay. It's like talking about unicorns. And that's just not true. I mean, the fact is critical race theory is being taught in Virginia schools, certainly in every college and also in high school. So I think that, you know, people want to try to uh, say that this is, a, you know, the Republicans are putting some some, uh, you know, sandstorm up um, some to to fight a culture war and distract us from the real issues of COVID and the economy. But I, I really think that's a mistake. I think that we need to take this challenge on because, you know, there's a way in which the voters know what critical race theory is, which is about the need to talk about race and racism, the need to talk about the history of racism in the United States and how that is ongoing, has ongoing effects today. That's basically what it is. I think if we define it in this narrow technical way mm-hmm. as, you know, you know, a very small sub-subfield in legal studies, you know, it's it's not really true. I mean, critical race theory emerged after winning the civil rights um, uh, legislative struggles against de jure segregation and Jim Crow, and after all of those things were won, you know, everything got worse. Poverty got worse. Uh, racialized incarceration got worse. Um, terrible housing, you know, continued. Uh, voting rights has been eroded. So the point of it was to begin to think a little bit more deeply about how racism continues to structure our society. And that is being taught. And that's why they're trying to teach teach beloved in the schools because beloved um, and, and what's so ironic about what teaching beloved really is that it's a, it's a brilliant novel that is talking about the difficulty of talking about the past, the trauma of the past, even for those who had been enslaved. I mean, the characters in beloved are African-Americans who experienced slavery and they have trouble looking back, right? It is not easy to do. But what the book does is it shows that you have to. Everybody has to. Um, and it's difficult. And it raises all kinds of moral questions. How do you judge the choices that we make under terribly oppressive conditions? Can we even judge the moral choices that that we made under terribly oppressive conditions. I mean, the book is brilliant because it raises all these questions. It shows how hard and difficult it is, and it can help students, you know, have a way to begin to think about these questions, you know, in a, in a productive way and maybe talk to each other. So I just think we need to stop um, avoiding the topic. This is what the Dems always do. So the voters have a choice between they either get a racist message or they get a race avoidance message, you know, from the liberals and the Democrats who say, no, 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 this has nothing to do with race. We should be talking about the other serious issues Whereas in actuality, you know, all these issues do have something to do with race and we're not providing 
an alternative way to talk about race. We're just trying to avoid the topic or, or, or sweep it under the rug. Do you think it's, it, it's something that white voters want to grapple with? Well, many do. Um, you know, we have to think both short-term and long-term when we do electoral work. And there's, you know, loads of, of people who are doing focus groups and, and looking at how you get white voters to vote for people of color candidates. How do you get white voters to vote for bond issues that will bring resources to public schools in cities and urban areas? And they have found ways to do it. Um, a lot of the main experts counsel race avoidance, downplay your identity if you're not white, downplay the uh, where the funds are actually going. And this short-term strategy has shown to be effective, but we also have to think about a long-term strategy. So we, we need short-term strategies that will not make the long-term worse. And clearly, um, there is uh, broader white support, especially among younger people, for recognizing the truth about the racist history in the United States. And I think we have to find some strategies. Ian Haney Lopez's book, Merge Left, I recommend people read that. It is, he's, he's a critical race theorist part, you know, uh, he's a great one. And he's been writing on this for years, and he wrote this book, Merge Left, which is about how to talk to voters with a race-class narrative. So there, there are mechanisms to do this, and we need to further develop them. We, we, we have to stop thinking about the electorate as fixed and unchanging. Mm-hmm. Right. And speaking of finding ways to talk about uh, narratives of, of race and class simultaneously, uh, this is something that uh, organizing upgrade uh, puts a lot of energy into. Uh, Alex Hahn, y- your thoughts tonight? I mean, right now uh, in Virginia, uh, Glenn Yonkin still up about ten points with almost two thirds of the votes in. Um, this is somebody who was a, a, a private equity CEO at the Carlisle Group. Uh, probably never really cared that much uh, uh, whether what uh, literature was being taught in uh, Virginia public schools, but. Uh, is now trying to ride this uh, all the way into the governor's seat. Um, can you can you talk about what, what you see happening in Virginia and also uh, copycat um, attempts we're going to likely see elsewhere in the coming years uh, from Republicans uh, already building off of uh, sort of the um, strategies of Donald Trump? Yeah, I you know, I would say it's important to take a step back and think of the whole picture of what is happening today. Um, and I think, you know, the, these results in Virginia are uh, certainly um, at best too close for comfort um, and, and at worst, you know, uh, symbolic of something you can kind of depending on the perspective you bring, um, you can put a lot of different lenses on that. I do think it's important to understand that we really have been in a five decade backlash, um, you know, to uh, whether you want to think about the New Deal um, kind of the great society, the civil rights movement. Um, we've been in a five-decade backlash to the 60s. Um, and I think over the last couple of years, we've really accomplished a lot, including beating back a potential second term of Donald Trump. Um, we've created a lot of alignment um, in a coalition 
uh, left progressive alignment is one of the ways we like to talk about it as organizing up at organizing upgrade. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that there are um, reasons to be uh, hopeful about the future around politics. I think this, you know, this election, we've already seen it spun uh, one million different ways, the results of of, uh, of the Virginia election. I mean, I think you, you raised a really salient point um, in, you know, Glenn Youngkin's 25-year uh, career at the Carlyle Group in private equity, um, in vulture investment capital, um, you know, something that in my memory, uh, in 2012, we had a campaign across the country uh, where Barack Obama um, hung that around, um, you know, the Republican candidate um, and kind of made them answer for that in a very clear way. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm no, I've never, I've never pulled, um, you know, the popularity of Toni Morrison among the electorate, um, but I've certainly seen a lot of polls of Wall Street um, and private equity among the electorate, um, and they are not uh, popular. And so, you know, I, I think that there are, you know, ways to read um, far more into the results of what comes out of Virginia um, than is really, uh, uh, you know, reflective of what's happening on the ground. I think we've seen a dynamic and a tide shift. We see another former investment banker in New Jersey, uh, in Governor Phil Murphy, um, who really turned into one of the most progressive governors I think we've had. Um, anywhere um, over the last several decades in the United States. Um, and it looks like he's in a relatively comfortable position um, for re-election. And so I think that there are ways to think about, you know, there, there is, you, you can't talk about class without talking about race, and you can't talk about race without talking about class. And I think any attempt to do so um, is seen, you know, by voter, like that's seen through by voters. They might not have a clear idea um, of exactly how they view things. Um, but I think voters, you know, have an ability to detect uh, uh, when they're being played um, in that way. And so I think that, right. you know, there, there are some lessons to learn here um, for next year, but there's not an enormous amount of, you know, there, there's, there are dangers out there um, that are much greater uh, than uh, Glenn Youngkin um, winning the governorship of Virginia. And so I think if we keep our eyes on the prize, um, and we really think about how to build a front uh, big enough to beat back um, these kind of culture war attempts, um, you know, then, then that's going to be critical over these next couple of right. years. Right. We only have another uh, minute or two here. Uh, but real, real quickly, your thoughts of the impact of the, of the Democrats really being unable in Congress to, to move uh, most of the Biden agenda with all these uh, potential um, expansions of government support for working and middle class people. Um, what is the impact when, when, you know, people come out and vote uh, for the Democrats and then they don't deliver on most of their commitments? You know, I, I think there's always going to be an impact, but nobody was going to feel the impact, frankly, of the infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better Act immediately after its passage. And so I, I you know, that I think the issue is, again, a step back issue. The corporate capture of the Democratic Party is an issue. Uh, the inability um, the, the kind of uh, the kind of attempts to of the right wing of the Democratic Party um, to push back the growing energy that is in the left and progressive side of the Democratic Party are the bigger questions, I think, bigger than the passage of one bill or another. Would it have helped in this election to have been able to talk about passing this bill? I'm sure it would have helped. Um, but I think there, you know, in, in these questions, right. you know, there are no there are no 